Well, it's January 1st of 2023. Um, I want to think forward to 2024 for a second. Um, and uh, the question I'd like your input on, uh, what are some of the changes people might want in themselves by a year from now? So today people are thinking, okay, this is what's going to happen so that a year from now, things might be a little different. Help me out. What might be some of those things? And online, feel free to chat so that, that I can see and report that. What are some things that people might want to say? Here's something I want to be different a year from now. Where's some ideas? Lose a lot of weight. Lose a lot of weight. Yes, a classic one. Yeah, this will be the year. Yeah, lose some weight. What else? Clean out the attic. <laughs> Clean out the attic. Those parts in the, in the house, the apartment, that where things can kind of gather and you never know what you might find there. Clean your room. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> you never know what might gather there. No, that's a good thing, especially when it's a new cool room and it's just yours. What was that? Courage. Courage. Be courageous. Yeah, that's good. Good. Other things that people might say, you know what? This is something I want to be different. Anything else? Maybe it's complete. Yes, Miss. Excellent. Yeah, closer to God and, and following the path that He has. Yeah, a great thing. Yeah, for, for some of us, it's relationships. Say, here's a relationship I want repaired. I want something better in this spot. Uh, for some of us, it's, it's career path. Saying, I want this path, I want this job that says, this is a, a good direction for me. Um, yeah, for some of us, it's just hope in the journey. Um, many different things. What I want to think about for a little bit today is what God wants in you and me in the coming year, what he wants to be different a year from now. Uh, and also, I want to think a little bit about what changes does he want in us together as a community, for us as a church. What does God want? And then the related question is, so what will we do about us? Do, what will we do about it, about his plans and what he wants? Um, but first, I want to tell you uh, my own experience uh, with one thing. A number of years ago, I was really thankful for the chance to go back to school uh, I thought I was done with school, uh, decided to go back for some more schooling, and our kids joked that I was going to go from student discount to retiree discount without a gap. Um, thankfully, I was able to get a gap in there. Um, but I had an experience where I went to learn from somebody that I really respected, and I was so thankful for that opportunity. Uh, got to a point where I had to turn in this, this big paper, and I, I turned it in a, a, a chapter at a time. And I turned in that first chapter. I'd worked pretty hard on it, and, and I was uh, pretty eager to, to hear some, some good feedback on it. Uh, turns out that the feedback I got wasn't quite as encouraging as I wanted. Uh, it, came, it was literally a physical piece of paper, um, no, no markup in PDF or something like that. It was a physical piece of paper, and there was a lot of red ink, literally a lot of red ink on it. And there's one statement uh, that I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget. So let me just back up and say, I was wanting to study churches that embraced a university environment. Not churches that are afraid of the university or think the university is the enemy, but churches that love the university community. So I wanted to study this. And so I was studying churches that were, were doing this around the country, and it was just fascinating. So I was excited to, to write about this. And here was the comment that I got from this professor I really respected. He said, if you want to do any kind of ministry in the university setting, you have got to do way better work than this. <laughs> and I thought, oh, what discouraging news. And I wish I could say, well, that's why I signed up for this, right? I came here so that somebody could teach me what I need to know. I wish I could say that. <laughs> no, I said, oh, this isn't good. What's wrong with me? And I don't think he understands. And right, and all these other things to justify it. I got this feedback that was really hard and I wasn't excited about it. I wish I could say I was excited about it, but I wasn't. And yet now I think, wow, yeah, he taught me some things that I had to learn for the journey that I was on. So the feedback was so good. But it's not what I wanted. Today, not to me, that I want you to listen to, but to God. 
and to say, God, I want your feedback. And if it's encouraging, great. Where it is encouraging, I love it. And where it's the feedback that says, you know what? Some things ought to change that we would have the courage to listen to that. And so I want to just lead us in prayer that God would teach us with great kindness and also with firmness as we need for each of our hearts that he would do this work. So let's join together in that prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're pretty amazed that we can call you our heavenly Father. Uh, you, the creator, uh, the, the overseer, the, the one who is forever, and, and Jesus, the Son of God, who in a formal sense, the creator of all that is, and creator of us. We ask that you would teach us today. Holy Spirit, would you work? We ask that you would give us the feedback that we need. Where encouragement is needed, would you boldly and strongly encourage? And where we need feedback for correction, we ask that you would give it in your kindness, in your firmness, that you would shape us. We thank you that you are good, that you are a father who loves us so much because of Jesus. And that you intend to help us to grow. So we ask that you do that today and throughout this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, the title today is Calling Him Father. Uh, we'll talk more about this drawing in a few minutes. We're in First Peter. So let me just say a quick word about what we're doing in January. Um, uh, particularly with the elders, when thinking about what the, the path is for us as a church. And one of the things that's just been coming back to us is discipleship, um, is what it is to grow in a follow, being followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, so one of the things that I'm going to do in January is just take some time thinking about different aspects of discipleship focused on God. Uh, so today we're looking at God the Father. Next week we will look at God the Son. And in two weeks we'll look at God the Holy Spirit. And looking at who he is, and how that shapes us in our lives. Um, so today, looking at, at First Peter, and encourage you, uh, yeah, some, some handouts you can follow along if that's helpful. Uh, it's just a couple of verses. I'll have it on the screen, but encourage you to have that in front of you as well. First Peter, um, just say a word about First Peter. Uh, this was written by Peter, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in many ways the, 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 the spokesman, the, the most prominent of his followers, of his apostles. It was written to Christians, uh, and I put it this way, he, he was written writing to Christians who knew that their current home was not their forever home. They were exiles, he said, and this wasn't really their choice. They were living in a place that, that wasn't really where they wanted to live. And uh, there's a bit of debate about this, but, but I think it's both the literal foreigners, people who are literally living away from their homeland, literally living away from the place that, that felt like home, that was, was uh, in a, a way of interaction that felt natural, that they were welcomed there. And many of us know what it's like to live as literal foreigners. And they were spiritual foreigners in the sense that they were not living with Jesus in his perfect rule. Uh, they were living in a, a place where that, that wasn't the norm. And so he was writing to Christians who knew their current home was not their forever home. And some things that Peter said in this is that they had to take seriously their current home. He said, if you've got an emperor over you, over you you've got to honor the emperor. You've got to figure out how do you behave in this setting, just like people who are living as foreigners have to do, to say, what are the rules, what are the ways that we have to operate here? We have to take that seriously. While at the same time, Peter said, you've got to put your full hope in your forever home. Got to take seriously where we are, but look ahead and say, that's where my real hope is. My full hope is there. My full hope isn't there. It's there. And then to be shaped by the forever home. Peter says, this is what you got to do. Take seriously where you are now, but look ahead to what your true home is. And let that be your full hope. And let that be what shapes how you live. And Peter says, to be sure we understand, that we're putting our hope in a guaranteed by God forever home, right? This is not something we hope that'll somehow work out, but this is what God says. This is a guarantee. This is the path ahead. He said, set your hope there. So I'm just taking a few verses from 1 Peter 
1, verse 17 to 21. So let me read through that. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you are redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. I wanted to spend a few minutes looking at this. And one of the practices I find really helpful is to copy the text into a word processor or type it, however you get it there. And then I start to organize it to use indentation and new lines to help me follow it. So I've done a little bit for us in this. Um, So just to highlight a few parts, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. This is the one command we look at today. Live out your lives as foreigners here in reverent fear. That reverent fear is a challenging expression. What does it mean? And so I decided, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to to a, a website that lets me see all these different English translations of it. And it turns out they all say fear, reverence, or reverent fear. <laughs> the one variation I found, uh, which was the New International Reader's Version, which I encourage you, it's a great resource to turn to to say, can you make this understandable, especially for kids? And it says highest respect right this is this is not oh no i'm going to get destroyed by this this is a high respect that's appropriate that's good um let me give you a possible illustration that uh to many of us skydiving sounds like a really bad idea but to somebody who's an expert skydiver they live with reverent fear of the ground right that not the kind of fear that says, oh no, I'm going to die on this time out. It's the reverent fear that says, I take seriously that if I don't do all these things right, I could die here, and so I'm going to do it right. So an expert skydiver lives with reverent fear of gravity and the ground. Not afraid, and I can't do this, but with a seriousness about it. Maybe it's a little bit like a really good driver in Michigan in the winter, (laughs) right? Living in reverent fear of ice, of black ice in in particular. Says, I don't know, this could happen. And so I'm going to drive carefully. Uh, A number of years ago, we were driving, well, not that long ago, it was a year ago, I think, we were driving back from from, uh, Oklahoma, got as far as southern Michigan, and that's where we hit the deer. (laughs) And in that period, that space in Michigan, it should be everywhere in Michigan, but I live with a greater reverent fear of deer <laughs> that says I have to keep my watch out, keep watching for eyes that reflect on the side of the road. Not, oh no, I'm going to die because I might hit a deer any time. Living with the expectation that, that deer are real <laughs> and they really ruin the day, right? And they ruin the car and all sorts of trouble, so let's pay attention. So there's a reverent fear that's not, oh no, I'm going to die, and yet it's taking these things seriously. The other illustration I think of is astronauts, right? They, they don't go saying, oh no, today might be the day that I die. It's, no, if we do this with great care, we can do this safely, with great care. So he says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So why live in reverent fear? He gives Uh, a a number of reasons. And so going back to the first verse, the first part of it, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. So I think this is his first reason is he says, if you are a Christian, you have a father who judges each person's work impartially. To be a Christian is to call on God as father through Jesus Christ and to say he judges each person's work impartially. He judges each person's work. He, he looks at each person's work and says, is this good? Is this bad? And, and you notice he says that he does this impartially. 
Now, now this is really significant because in the, in the original context, we, we read of this use of this word in other places in the New Testament, this idea that some people thought God looked at Jewish people and said, oh, they're great. And he looked at Gentile people and said, no, they're no good, the non-Jewish people. But, but we read in Romans, no, God looks at all people whatever nation or background, and he doesn't just say, oh, well, you're from that country. Well, I don't really have to pay as much attention to what you do. I take it seriously everywhere. Impartially, God looks at it. God doesn't say, oh, you're a really powerful person, so I'm going to let you get a pass on this. Or you, are, you have no power at all, so I won't worry about your bitterness. Right? God looks at every person impartially, and he judges their work. And I think especially in this section. God judges Christians and non-Christians impartially. He doesn't say to Christians, oh, well, you're part of my family, so I'll just let it go. No problem. I'll just ignore that. And, and he doesn't look at good things that other people do and say, oh, but you're, you're not part of my family, so I can't see any good. Right? Impartially, God looks at what we do and says, this is good and this is bad. He says we should live in reverent fear because God is a God who is just and looks at the world and he hates injustice, whoever it is that does it, whatever their context, whatever their rationale, whatever their race or ethnicity or, or their culture, God looks at it impartially. No one gets a free pass. So he says, if you call on God as your father, remember that he looks at everything that we do And he says, I like this and I don't like this. What you're doing to this person, the way you're behaving about this, that's really problematic, whoever you are. So he says, first of all, live in reverent fear because God does continue to look at all that every one of us does. And he looks at our hearts too. (laughs) It's a part I wish I could hide. Right? So he says, pay attention to this. And then the second reason he says that you have been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. He says, you've got a father who has rescued you from an empty way of life. See, the challenge is that our default paths are so often worthless. This is is the empty way of life. Our default way of thinking is so often worthless. It's so often problematic. And, And this is what we've each inherited from our ancestors, both from being human, but then in each of our cultures, in each of our contexts, in each of our countries, we've inherited things that are so often worthless. Like what's so obvious, I do what is best for me and mine. Right? This is just a natural thing that, that we do, that, that we've got patterns for it. And Peter says we should live in reverent fear because you know what? We've been rescued from worthless ways. And if we just do what seems natural to us, so often it's going to be really problematic. And he says you have been redeemed at a great cost. And I think there's a third reason. He says that we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. That we've been rescued from these worthless ways at such a great cost by the Son of God, the precious blood of Christ, the the life of of the Son of God. He was like a lamb without a blemish or defect. This one who was chosen before the foundation of the world and was revealed in the last times for us. He says we should live in reverent fear because we've been rescued at such a great cost, right? At this huge cost. And it's by God's plan from before time. God has rescued us. And so he says we should live in a reverent fear in what we do because the price that was paid to rescue those who trust in Jesus is such a high cost. And he says that through him, through Christ, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God. And and I think this fourth reason is that we live in reverent fear of God because he's the one we hope in. (laughs) Because he's the one who is holy and has called us and has paid a high price. He is the one who planned and commanded our rescue. He is the one we're called to follow. Right? We, we live in reverent fear because the one that we show this highest respect to is the one we have our hope in. He's the one we trust in. Let me go back and just read these, these uh, verses again. 
since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. I would express Peter's idea like this. And that is that in deep love for us, God is passionately committed to seeing his children become more like Jesus. This is his plan. He, 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 He hates the ways that we've been stuck in, so he rescued us from them through the cost of his son, and he's passionately committed to seeing us grow to be more like Jesus. Right? This is so different from a fear of condemnation. Right? This is not God saying, oh, these are people I can't stand. It's God saying, these are people I love, and I long for them to be growing in the ways of my son. Right? It's, it's not, if I'm not good enough, I'll be condemned. Uh, my dad tells a uh, number of stories from his experience in the military academy. And, and he tells a story that, that when, uh, when he showed up at the introduction, they said, look to your left and look to your right. One of the three of you will not be here at the end. And they put the fear into them, saying, you could get kicked out of this place. This was very motivating, and fear is very motivating. That is not what Peter's talking about. He says, because God loves you so much, he wants you to grow to be like Jesus. It's not a fear of condemnation. It's because we are deeply loved. Right? Somebody who wants us to experience the joy and the freedom of being like Jesus. And so he's going to discipline us. He's going to train us. He says, this is what I want for you, so I want you to grow in this. It's his deep love. And so he is passionately committed to seeing his children become more like Jesus. And so Peter says his children must pursue it too in reverent fear of God. And saying he is God and he is good and he's the one I trust and he's the one who purchased me at such a high price and he loves me so much. He wants me to grow in this. So uh, I have a drawing of archery and uh, being an archer is uh, a good pastime, but for some people, it's not just a pastime, right? This is, this is a passion. It's a, a, a way of, of living as it's a, a, a path of competition. And, but it obviously stands for the journeys that we take. Um, but sometimes, being an archer, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you go and there's a target, and if you hit the target or not, not a whole lot matters. And I don't know if you can see what this archer uh, is doing here. It's kind of a running joke in our family. Where's the archer looking? Squirrel. Yeah, that's a, a good joke in our family that we're going along and you can just tell you're having a conversation and all of a sudden somebody just had a squirrel moment and they're somewhere else, right? And that's, that's this, this archer, right? Paying attention to the target, but oh, there's something else interesting to look at. Or how about this archer? Uh, you know, something else needs to be done. I'm out shooting, you know, at the target, but look at the grass needs to be cut. So we'll do that and lay the, the bow and the arrow up. How about this? This is the engineer who says there must be a way to do this with less effort. So I bet I can set up a contraption. It'll do it for me, and now I can do other stuff, right? This is what it's like to be an archer when it doesn't really matter if you get better. And so then this is an archer, perhaps, when we say, you know what, really is important to get better at this. When getting better does matter. And I don't know if you can read the, the, the poster there. Uh, what does it say? How to stand properly, right? And there's ways that you stand, and then you've got to watch where things hit the target, and you take seriously, I'm going to get better at this. Now, instead of just a personal growth opportunity, imagine having the greatest archery coach who's committed to helping you grow, right? The, the person who's best at this, best at teaching, and they come and they help you. And they say, I will help you grow with this. Squirrel moments are not a good idea, right? This person's time is precious. 
And we say, no, we're, we're not going to just say, oh, there's something else that's interesting. No, the coach is here. I'm paying attention. Right? And, and oh, I have some other chores to do. No, this is the time when the coach is there. We're not going to do that. I bet there's a way to set up a contraption so I don't have to get any better at this. No, that's not what you do when the coach is there. Right? If you have an archery coach who is committed to your growth, you say, I want to do everything I can. Right? If it's the best one, and we say, I'm going to do what I can to be a part of this. So here's what I think Peter is telling us. That God is passionately committed to our growth. And so I want you to imagine if you were studying archery, before you go out there for each round, whatever you call it when you do an end, or I don't know what you do, when you go out there, imagine having the coach starting each day with you and saying, here's what I want you to work on today. And at the end of the day, the coach says, okay, let's review how it went today. And here's some things that that ought to be a little bit different. So now I want you to imagine God offering to do that for us. God says, I'm game to start the day with you and say, here's something I think would be good for you to work on. And at the end of the day, he has a debrief session and says, so how did it go? Well, here's some good things I saw today, God says. And here's some things that, hmm, I think we ought to work on that again. We talked about it this morning and I think you kind of forgot. (laughs) So let's do that again. To make it very concrete, imagine if you happen to travel physically, the time it takes to get to your work or to school, or maybe the time it takes to get to the desk and make sure your background's good and and you appear good and get onto Zoom. In that time, imagine a short consultation with God saying, here's what I'd like to see happen today as you do this. Here's a place where I'd love to see some growth. And then as that ends, you have the debrief and God says, okay, that was good. God probably says, you know, it's, it's good that you honor me with your work, but your attitude really could use some adjustment here. <laughs> so imagine on the way to church, God does the same thing. On the way, God says, let's have a little conversation about how it's going to go today. And then afterwards, God says, okay, here's some feedback. Imagine literally having that conversation. Imagine Jesus traveled with you to do that. I think if I thought of it that way, I would live out my time in reverent fear, <laughs> saying, Jesus watched every conversation, every thought when I was at, in the worship service today. As I met people beforehand, as I anticipated, as I approached this conversation, he was watching everything that I did and all my thoughts, listened to all my words, and afterwards, we're going to have a time when he's going to give me some feedback. I thought of that. I would live in reverent fear that says, he's not there trying to trip me up. He wants me to grow. He wants me to be like he is. He wants to give me freedom and joy and to bless people through me. Right? God loves us and wants what is the very best for us. And yet, how hard it is to think about his perspective. And so back to my preaching course, I thought highly of this professor. And so I had to preach in front of this professor and get feedback. And I was so worried about what the the professor would say. So worried about it. And then it hit me. I think God might listen to me too. (laughs) I'm afraid of the wrong person. Right? I was living in fear of people instead of living in reverent fear of God who would give me feedback. So I want to ask this question. Why does God care so much about our growth in Christ? And I would say a couple of things. But first of all, most deeply, God loves his children. The best possible blessing is that we would become more like him. This is what he wants for us, right? He wants us to share Jesus' glory, which one way to understand that is to be more like him. Now, Maybe some of you uh, have thought about the verse in 1 John 3 that says, we don't know what's going to happen when we see God, but when we see him, we'll be like him. That's a wonderful promise. And yet here's something that seeps into us. That maybe I don't need to work so hard now. We'll just all get topped up when we get there, and then we'll be fine. (laughs) God loves us too much for that. He says here today, I want you to experience the glory of Christ. I want you to grow to be more like him. He loves us so much. He wants this greatest possible blessing. And the alternative is that our default ways are so often empty and worthless or worse. We give our attentions to things that cannot help us 
in what really matters. And he has rescued us from those. He wants us to grow in being more like Jesus. And we were rescued from these worthless ways at this amazing cost of the perfect and loved son, Jesus Christ. God wants us to grow, to be more like Jesus, to genuinely become more like him. And I do think a part of this is that if we are known by the name of Jesus, if we're known as a follower of Jesus Christ, God defends his glory. He wants his glory to be known because of people who claim his name. And this is so important. God doesn't merely want our salvation. Yes, God wants more people to be saved, but he doesn't merely want them to be saved. He wants us to be glorified. He wants us to join in the likeness of his son. So I I, want to be really clear. We become children of God entirely as a gift, right? Entirely as a gift. This is a work that God does. It's, It's an adoption that he does by his choice, right? So we read from Ephesians first, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We are rescued entirely as a gift by God. Right? Any obedience, any good works by us just makes no difference whatsoever in being adopted by God. All that matters is trusting in Christ and his work. And so this is why the promise is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So be perfectly clear, I'm not talking about condemnation for those who are in Christ. <laughs> this is entirely a gift. We become children of God entirely as a gift. And having become children of God, we are to grow. Right? And this is what every parent longs for. <laughs> when you adopt a child, you don't say, oh, this is the best child. I looked around and I couldn't find anyone better than this. I'll have this one because this is the best kid. <laughs> no, the parents say, this is a child we love. And we love and we adopt as a gift, not because we have to, but because we want to. And then the parents say, and I long for this child to grow. I long for this child to grow in freedom and, and in joy and in growing in maturity. And that's what God wants for all his children. God commands and expects us to become more like Christ. And he says we're to make every effort to be a part of that. Just like a child trying to learn to grow, it's not, okay, I'll wait and boy, I should be doing this adulting thing, but I guess you're not very good parents, so I'll just wait for you to fix it, right? Not the model. Make every effort to grow. This is what God wants from us. And... He will discipline us and reward us based on our progress. Just like a good parent would do, like a good coach would do. Say, boy, this was really good. I just want you to know I love when you're doing this. And this part, not so much. This is really problematic. And we're going to have to make some changes in, in some freedom that you have because of it. I'm convinced that God will discipline us and reward us in this life. In this life, he disciplines us. We're told to experience hardship in life as part of the discipline of God. That doesn't mean troubles are always a negative consequence of bad decisions we've made. Sometimes they are. But sometimes they're God's strategic work. It says you're ready for another challenge, so I'm going to give you one to help you grow. And there is reward. There's a partial reward in this. right? There are rewards when we experience freedom and peace and joy as we grow in Jesus. In the new heaven and the new earth, that's when Peter says, put your hope there. That's when you're going to fully experience this reward. Now, I'll say this. I'm fully convinced of it, but I'm not sure all Christians are. I expect God's discipline is going to happen, continue in the new heaven and the new earth. There won't be any sin there, but God's going to want us to keep learning and growing. And discipline is what a loving parent does to help us grow. Not then because of sin, but because of his love. And he says, I want you to keep learning new things. I want you to keep serving. I want you to continue to grow. God's discipline is an expression of his love. Having become children of God, we are to grow. Now, I do want to identify, I think there are three terrible ways to think I see in my heart. Right? So one is that grace or forgiveness means that sin no longer matters. Right? We're, we're saved by grace, and it's all going to get covered. 
And so it doesn't really matter very much anymore. Right? It's thinking that God ignores when we aren't like Christ. He says, oh, that's one of my kids. Oh, yeah, you know, they do that kind of stuff. And he ignores it. And if we think that God ignores it, then we think we can ignore when we aren't like Christ. We say, well, I'm only being human. It's just the way I am. And we think, well, this is okay. And I would say, wrong. <laughs> Not a good way to think. Right? So here's a challenging word, 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul was writing this as a Christian, as somebody adopted by God in Christ, entirely by grace. And he says, we need to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is the judgment seat of Christ, not saying, will you be in heaven or not? Will you be in the family of God or not? But how did you live? And it's a form of discipline. See, God disciplines those he loves. And we will answer to him as our father for how we've lived. Now, in my own story, it's easy to think, well, those who teach ought to be really careful about teaching because they're going to get a stricter judgment. But so often I thought, so that's, if you opt out of teaching, you don't have to worry about this. (laughs) No, it doesn't say that. It says there is a stricter judgment, but there is a judgment for everybody when God says, here's what I've given you. Let's talk about what you did with it. As a loving father, not to judge, but to bring growth. So this first terrible way of thinking says that when there's forgiveness, then sin doesn't matter. It's just blotted out. God never sees it again. And that's not true. He doesn't hold it against us. But he disciplines us. And so he does see it. A second thing, it's a terrible way to think, is that sinful people cannot make meaningful progress in being more like Christ. Right? So so, uh, in football, or uh, what... Americans think of as soccer. There are some amazing players, some incredible players, and just lost one Pele as he, he, he just passed away. There would be no point whatsoever in me trying to narrow the gap between my soccer ability and his soccer ability, right? It's such a big gap. Any progress I could make, you couldn't even measure. Sometimes Christians think this way about our righteousness and Christ's. We think his is so great, there is no point in my even trying to grow. Because the best I could ever do will just be so pathetic. I can't make any meaningful progress. And yet, the young people have been looking at this as they've gone through First and Second Peter. Second Peter 1 says this, Make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. Make every effort to add He says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. He says, grow in this stuff. Make every effort to add. There is meaningful progress to be made in becoming more like Christ. And I think sometimes, I've seen in myself, it's like I could never be like he is. So why try? And that's not God's idea. In fact, he says, whoever does not have these qualities, whoever is not growing these qualities, is nearsighted and blind. He says, make every effort to grow because you really can. We can and we must grow. And then the third thing I think is a terrible way of thinking is that God won't love us if we aren't good enough. God will look at us and say, oh, let's review what you've did, done this week, John. It's like, oh boy. And I'll think, yeah, God's going to be done with this project pretty soon. <laughs> and that is not true at all. Rather, his love is always entirely a gift, Right? And because he loves us so much, he will judge. He will discipline us. He'll become more like Christ. He doesn't say, I don't love you so much because you haven't been good. He says, because I love you so much, we're going to do something about this. (laughs) We're going to make some progress here because I love you so much. See, in his deep love for us, God is passionately committed to seeing his children become more like Jesus. And so Peter says, live in reverent fear. So we're to be committed to grow in being more like Jesus because God disciplines all his children so they'll grow. This is how God interacts with his children. He disciplines us so we'll grow. It's because we love and trust in God. 
the Father and the Son. We love Him. And so how can we say we love Him and worship Him and not care about becoming more like Him? We long to grow because we trust Him. Because Jesus paid such a high cost to rescue us from all that is less good than His ways. Because the other ways are so often worthless or worse. In His deep love for us, God is passionately committed to our growth. And so the application... Just Peter's words, very simply, live out our lives in reverent fear of God. One way to do this is to listen to his discipline and his teaching. To start out each day or week by saying, what is he teaching me? What has he asked me to work on? And to end each day or each week by saying, what's your assessment, God? Where is this good? Where's some work need to be done? Where's the red ink going to be? And I say, here's my dream. And he says, well, if that's your dream, we'd better work on some stuff. (laughs) We'd better take this seriously. So here's a simple thing that I've done. Say, God, would you please discipline me? And it's taken me a long journey to say, this is a prayer I want to (laughs) pray. But I realize, what else would I want? So imagine this, you struggle with some things in your life and relationships and your own self-identity and you're really wrestling with this stuff and it, it, it weighs you down heavily and so you go to a therapist and she says, what should we talk about? Say, I'm good, I'm fine, we're, we're okay, yeah, no, no serious issues here, right? What a foolish thing to do. Here is somebody who is skilled, who is ready to help you and we say, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bring that to the table here. Imagine that you were a student and you find a class with a professor who's, this is the person who really knows what you want to know. And you say, but I'm going to hide my uncertainty. <laughs> I'm not going to let this professor know when I have questions because I don't know, I'll kind of be embarrassed by that. I, I'm gonna, what a foolish thing to do. No, this is where you go to be taught. And so I've been challenged to say, Jesus, would you discipline me? Would you help me see what I need to see? And I confess this past week, I did this, and I went out for a walk. And guess who talked? (laughs) Right? The conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, here's something you did, and you really missed an opportunity. You didn't plan ahead. You didn't anticipate this, and you should have. And I felt horrible. And yet I'm so thankful to have a God who will talk to me like that and say, here's something you need to change. And so I had to come back and say, okay, I've got some messages I need to write because I really did not do what I was supposed to do. And I could justify it. I come up with these reasons, but I say, would you discipline me? And God is such a good, loving God. He says, okay, then let's work on some stuff. Just like if you say, I can't hit these free throws. Coach, could you help me? And the coach says, let's do it a little differently. Let's practice this a bit more. We say, okay. We say, please discipline me and then pay attention. And I love the statement from Revelation 3. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Jesus says, the people I love, they're the ones I correct. I don't go around correcting other people's kids. (laughs) I correct My people, the ones I love, I rebuke and discipline. And so I I think back to this preaching course and the the times I had to preach in front of this professor. And I confess in my heart, I wanted the professor to say, well, that was really good. All right, next person, nothing to say here. And it's like, how foolish. I should have gone in there saying, I sure hope this person can identify some things in me that need to be corrected because that's why I'm here. That's the best thing I could get from this situation. Now, I need some encouragement too. And that's what a good teacher, a good parent does. So we say, God, in your love and your kindness, would you discipline me? And then listen to the Spirit. Listen to the Bible as you read. Listen to people. Say, God, where are you at work correcting me and changing me? We're to listen to his discipline and his teaching and then make every effort to grow. And so this is something that I've realized so often. I've read the Bible to find out why I'm right. 
rather than reading the Bible to be corrected. And so I'm convinced now that I need to read the Bible to be corrected and encouraged, right? I need both. (laughs) If all I hear is the list of ways that I don't measure up, I get discouraged and I'm done. But if all I do is find the parts that I like and I'll highlight that first because that shows why this person is wrong and I'm right, that's not learning. That's not discipline. We need to make every effort to grow to say, God, can you teach me? Right? And when God disciplines you and me, write it down, talk to people about it, reflect on it, make adjustments, pay attention. Because here's the scary thing. If we stop listening to God, we lose our ability to hear him. So when he speaks, respond, pay attention, make every effort to grow. And then work with others for mutual growth, for mutual encouragement to grow and in growing. This is such a significant thing to do together. We need to take seriously God's message through other people, right? Because the first thing that comes to mind is defend myself, defend myself, explain why they're wrong and it's not my fault, right? That wells up in my heart so quickly. Say, no, I need to listen to be corrected. I need to hear the voice of God through people even when I say, you know what, I don't even think they're Christians. So what? God could speak through a donkey so he can speak through any person he chooses. So I need to listen. And I need to have the courage to speak. God can speak through a donkey so he could speak through me too. And this is an area where people are telling me I need to grow, I need to learn, right? I get feedback saying, There are some things you need to change and God speaks through them and part of what he says is I need to be willing to speak when I'd rather hide to. We need to work together to grow. And in confident faith, expect the Spirit of God to transform us. Right? Expect that a year from now we will be different people because God himself has been at work in our lives. The Spirit of God is at work to transform us to be more like Jesus in real and important ways. We need to trust Him. And it is like great parents who want their kids ready for life. We say, God, would you help me a year from now? There are challenges ahead in my life, in the world. Would you prepare me for that? Just like we might go to parents and say, could you help me be ready for school? Would you help me be ready for something? Or they say, I'm going to help you even though you haven't asked me yet like great coaches who want their players to grow. And in a very real way, the motivation is that when we see him, we'll hear him say, well done. Because he's been speaking and by the Holy Spirit, he's changed us. So I want to just step back to this question of thinking toward a year from now. And to think, what changes does God want in you and me this year. There are lots of good things that that can be a part of our list, but here is clearly what God has at the core. He wants us to be more like Jesus. He wants us to become glorified like the Son of God, meaning that we grow in having his character, in living like him. And I think, what does God want in us as a church in this coming year? Well, it's to be more like the body of Christ. That's very broad, and God doesn't work everywhere at once. (laughs) So then this is where it takes time to listen. Say, God, discipline us. Discipline me. So I was challenged with this question. Uh, uh, This fall, I told you I've been looking at this book called Sent, about how to interact with people and sharing the good news about Jesus. And this great question in it is this. What's it like when God is working in your life? What is that like? And they said, ask people this. Do you ever have a sense that God's at work in your life? What's it like? And I had a conversation this morning. Somebody said, I have a sense that God is at work in my life. Well, here are some of the things that I see when God is at work in my life. It's awareness of my sin and the beauty of righteousness. See, God is at work when he helps me see where I fall short and the beauty of his ways. When he helps me see my blindness and the wisdom of God. This church has been a huge part of helping me see my blindness that I didn't have. God's been at work because of that. It's an awareness of his great love for me and for others. God is at work. So we want to help each other participate in this great work of God together. Let me go back and read these words. 
First uh, Peter, and just to uh, offer a time for us to pray, to listen, say, God, discipline me, and then pay attention and thank him for his great love. So First Peter 1, 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Just invite you in silence to, to pray to God, to ask him to discipline, to teach, to encourage, and then to listen. Father in heaven, we do call on you as our Father and as a Father who judges each person's work impartially. We declare that you are holy and we are not. We ask that you would discipline us individually and together, that you would help us to grow. Help us to know your discipline is an expression of your love and your commitment to our growth and your commitment to our joy. We ask that you do this work. We thank you that you are committed to it more than we are, and yet we ask that you would help us to join in that work. By the power of your Spirit, in Jesus we pray. Amen.